HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, My guest today is Dr. James Johnson, and we're going to delve into some really gnarly science here, actually. This is going to be fun. Um, Dr. Johnson is a professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota. He is the Director of Infectious Diseases T32 Training Program and the Senior Associate Director of the Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program. Um, and Dr. Johnson is a... Fre- this, is, this is the key thing, folks. Dr. Johnson is a frequently invited speaker at national and international scientific meetings. He has presented at Cap- Capitol Hill briefings and hearings and has served on multiple national tasks forces, committees, and grant review panels. He serves also as an attending physician for the VA Infectious Diseases Consult Service and Infectious Diseases Clinic and sits on multiple hospital committees, including currently the Antimicrobial Subcommittee, Space Committee, and Institutional Biosafety Committee. So you can see, my friends, that Dr. James Johnson is da bomb. So um, welcome to the program, Dr. Johnson. (laughs) Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, so uh, I got interested in, I, I was directed to you by another doctor who um, was part of an article that I read about uh, Congressman Henry Waxman, uh, my personal hero, who has introduced another bill into Congress um, uh, to start fighting the overuse of antibiotics in livestock agriculture. He has a slightly different slant than Dr. Louise Slaughter, who is another congresswoman who's been fighting the good fight. So anyway, um, I was directed to you, and, and, and so glad I was, because you sent me lots of fantastic things to read, and one of them being a recent article that you and a colleague published uh, focusing on emerging strains of E. coli. And just to remind you folks, E. coli is that uh, very common foodborne illness um, that was uh, first came to national prominence with the Jack and the box outbreak in 1994, I think it was, um, that sickened thousands and killed quite a few people and so forth. So 
this uh, emerging antibiotic resistant strains of E. coli is is big news, uh, even though nobody seems to be covering it except for me, um, which makes me wonder whether I'm crazy or they're crazy. Anyway, um, in this summary of the recent article, you stated the following, most human uh, extra intestinal Escherichia coli infections, including those involving antimicrobial resistant strains, are caused by members of a limited number of distinct lineages. Um, and multiple lines of evidence suggest that many of these strains encountered in humans uh, bring on uh, things outside of gastrointestinal illnesses, which is what we normally associate with foodborne illness. Right, doctor? Right. And, and some of the things you just said remind me, I probably need to clarify some of the concepts here. Right. People think about when you hear E. coli, I think the man on the street typically thinks about hamburger associated mm-hmm. outbreaks like that Jack in the Box thing mm-hmm. or the big uh, German outbreak a year ago summer, um, diarrheal disease. Right. It's a, you know, they, you think E. coli, diarrhea. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it does cause diarrhea, and there are strains that cause bad diarrhea, but it's a much, much bigger problem as a cause of urinary tract infection, bloodstream infection, meningitis. So extra intestinal, meaning outside the intestine. Right. And that, that gets absolutely no attention um, in, the, in the press or the public health system, even though it's a much, much larger disease burden, uh, 10 to 50 times more illnesses and death um, due to these extra intestinal E. coli infections. But they're not nearly as sensational because mm-hmm. they usually don't occur as outbreaks where you get a whole bunch of them clustered in one place. That tends to freak people out. Also, the notion that it's obviously in the food because, you know, hamburger or sprouts or lettuce or whatever, it's food causing people to get sick, some to die, that gets headlines. Well, and it's a very direct relationship. It's really easy for people to track that as opposed to... to, And it's very obvious when it happens. But the extraintestinal infections, like urinary infections, they sort of pop up here and there all over the place, and people regard that as, well, that's just the way it is. You know, life happens and go on about your business, Mm -hmm. not realizing that many of those infections also are being spread, uh, the bacteria are being spread through the food supply and are got to be antibiotic resistant, uh, probably from food animal uh, antibiotic use. Wowee. So how scared are we all supposed to be about this? Well, you know, scared <laughs> makes for good press. I don't think scared is good. Scared doesn't help. Right. We should be aware, and we should take action. Um, and we can skip the scared stuff. Let's move right on to get informed and then be proactive. Right. And so when you say be proactive, does that mean like, um, you know, attending marches and rallies? I mean, I've been to actually rallies. Like, well, what brought my attention to this specifically is that, I mean, I've been thinking that this is one of the greatest public health challenges we face in the coming years. And, um, of course, Consumers Union uh, recently circulated a petition that garnered over half a million signatures in a very short space of time. Um, And they were presented to Trader Joe's in an effort to have them commit to not selling any meat that has been treated by antibiotics at any time during the animal's life. And um, they were met with uh, something less than enthusiasm by Trader Joe's. <laughs> Go figure. Um, even though they already carry some antibiotic-free meat. But um, yeah. there doesn't seem... I mean, I feel like there just isn't a lot of press about this. And would you concur that this is definitely a very major public health issue in the making? Well, it's it's not just in the making. I mean, it is now. It's a huge public health issue. And people in the public health system and infectious disease specialists who have to 
treat these now becoming almost impossible to treat infections are very aware of it. I mean, we're tearing our hair out. I just got back from the National Infectious Disease meeting, and it was session after session about the horrible onslaught of antibiotic-resistant bacteria for which we have no good drugs anymore, and the drug companies aren't making new drugs. So it's not like a pending public health crisis. It actually is a public health crisis. In fact, it has been for several years. Mm -hmm. It's just we're sort of in a zombie state. People aren't aware of it. But we're we're people say when will the train go off the rails? It's off the rails oh in God. some parts of our country and in some parts of the world. You can't treat these infections anymore uh, because they're resistant to everything we have, and people are dying. So you know, is that a public health problem? In large numbers, yes, it's here. It's with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my in my community, fortunately, we've been relatively protected. We're in the middle of the country. We haven't seen the worst of the worst bugs, but they're starting to show up as a trickle. But even the moderately bad bugs that we don't have good oral antibiotics, you can't give pills for UTIs now for some of these bugs. You have to give an IV. That's crazy. You know, where are we going? This is a public health uh, crisis right now. It's not tomorrow, it's now. Well, it's interesting to me. I mean, on a personal level, my mother suffered constantly from UTIs at the end of her life, partly because her immune system obviously being elderly which was compromised. But they, they kept giving her more and more antibiotics, which did not do anything. And they kept telling, you know, they kept saying, are you wiping yourself correctly? <laughs> like, as yeah. if, you know what I mean? But it was really, the fact was, is that the, the you know, these UTIs had already morphed into something and it was not at all recognized this is like five or six years ago anyway we move on but just saying that like you know when people see that happening in the elderly and they just like you said they just think it's you know part of life it's not part of life it's part of this problem so um one of the studies that you sent me um pointed out that the major part of antimicrobial resistant strains of e coli are originating from poultry can you talk a little bit about the implications of those studies and and why particularly poultry as opposed to pork or cattle which are treated almost as indiscriminately as poultry are are with anti with uh, excuse me with antibiotics Yeah, um, it's hard to pin down exactly um, where the antibiotic use is going on that is responsible for the resistance strains that we're seeing. There's no question that antibiotic use leads to resistance strains. And there's tons of antibiotic use, literally tons, uh, thousands of tons of antibiotics being used around the globe in animals and in humans, and you can track that wherever you look, antibiotic use, and then you get resistant bugs, and the bugs move around, and so do the resistance genes. So um, there's, a, there's a wealth of studies, I mean hundreds, thousands of studies, um, showing through various different study designs that antibiotic use on the farm leads to resistant bugs, that those resistant bugs can wind up in the food supply or through other channels, the environment, um, direct contact, get into humans, and that those bugs or the resistance genes that they carry can then wind up um, being involved in infections in humans. And those infections, when they're resistant, tend to be more difficult to treat than susceptible ones. That's true wherever resistance comes from. Absolutely. Antibiotics are used in food animals in a number of different ways. They're used extensively, but it varies considerably by country. The U.S. uses uh, more antibiotics per animal uh, per pound of meat 
that comes to market than any other industrialized country for which we have data. We don't know what's going on really in the developing world. They probably use even more. Mm-hmm. But, and the U.S. has very high rates of antibiotic-resistant organisms uh, in their meats compared with some other countries that use uh, fewer antibiotics. So we are, I think, training up resistant bugs on the farm. They're coming through to consumers, and those bugs or the resistance genes they carry do contribute to the resistance problem in humans, but so does antibiotic use in humans, of which there's way too much also. Yes. So getting the docs and the patients to use antibiotics more sensibly is a equally important uh, part of this whole thing about how do we stop creating more of these superbugs. Well, one of the um, statistics that has been bandied about extensively and which um, my guest from Consumers Union, Gene Alleran, um, stated several times is that 80% of the antibiotics produced in this country by pharmaceutical companies is going into the livestock agricultural sector. So uh, that's, a, that's a pretty staggering um, statistic in my mind. But um, you, you bring me on to this because I think there, there are certain things that I am confused about and I'm sure other people are too, but when we talk about uh, meat having antibiotic resistant pathogens is it when we consume that meat if it's not properly cooked we'll get sick but when we consume that meat and it is properly cooked will we still get sick are we still absorbing antibiotics through meat or don't they withdraw antibiotics isn't it the law that they have to withdraw antibiotics at a certain number of weeks before slaughter yes uh, a couple of points there first back to the idea about you know 80% of all antibiotics various numbers are out there um, people dispute how much it is. However sure much do. it is, it's a whole lot, and it, it probably equals or exceeds the amount of uh, antibiotic use in humans, that is, in food animals. The, the point is not to say, well, you know, is there more in humans or is there more in animals? The point is there's a whole, whole, whole lot in animals and a whole, whole, whole lot in humans, and wherever it's happening, it's contributing to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the antibiotic-resistant bacteria in foods, when they come into the kitchen, if you cook your food well, are you protected? No, because um, actually even in the store, you handle it, you put it in your cart. Some of those bugs are on the outside of the package, like salmonella and campylobacter, have been transmitted to kids who just rode in the shopping cart next to the turkey uh, or whatever, wrapped in plastic. Oh, my God. So the the bugs are there. When they get in your kitchen, you you get it out, you thaw it, there's juice everywhere. It's on your hands, it gets on the table, the cutting board, the implements. The, The meat piece itself that gets cooked fine it's it's sterilized the bugs are gone there's nothing left but then it comes back out and it may be touched on the same plate the same implement the same cutting board your hands which haven't been completely sterilized so there's cross contamination mm-hmm. um antibi- the dif- distinction between antibiotics themselves the chemical molecules and antibiotic resistant bacteria uh, they do withdraw the antibiotic treatment long enough before market that there's essentially zero antibiotic chemical left in the meat by the time it comes to the consumer. So you don't have to worry about you're not eating antibiotics. However, withdrawing, bugs live. Bugs continue to live and continue to be resistant in the animals. These are usually the intestinal bacteria in the animals. Right. In the case of, uh, there, there may be some surface bugs also that are of issue. Those bugs are still there. They're very alive, and they're still very antibiotic resistant, even though the, the drugs were removed days or weeks prior to slaughter. Oh. They come to slaughter. The bugs get on the meat product. Very trace levels. You can't, you can't see it, but they're there. You can do cultures. We've done that. Everyone's done it. You can find them. There's plenty. And then the bugs, if they can survive the cooking, which they usually don't, but if they can cross-contaminate something, sure. then you get an antibiotic-resistant bug, even though there's no more antibiotic around. 
The antibiotic's gone, but the bug remembers, the bug survives, the bug carries the resistance mm-hmm. genes, and it can then pass those genes on to other bugs in your intestine, or it itself may stay in you and cause an infection. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm trembling. Now, one of the things that really impressed me when I was reading through those papers that you sent me were the various methods of transfer. So you've talked about cross-contamination, but the way these bugs evolve was really interesting to me. For example, um, you ref- there was a couple of studies that suggested that one of the most rapid methods of transmission globally of antimicrobial-resistant bacteria is through the breeding process. In other words, selling sperm and eggs, I'm assuming, because I mean, they, you know, they artificially inseminate most uh, livestock animals now. So that was one thing that really struck me. And the other thing that struck me was when you talked about or when one of the papers talked about the horizontal exchange of DNA and why this is such a swift source of uh, antimicrobial resistance. I mean, at the risk of being like an unbelievable geek here, can you just Mm -hmm. like quickly explain those two concepts? And then we have to take a short break. Well, the, the breeder process, part of that issue is that um, breeder stock animals will be shipped from country to country. Uh-huh. Uh, so then, then you, when you've got animals moving between countries, the animals move along with all of their intestinal and skin bacteria. So if you have mm-hmm. resistant bugs in one country, suddenly, boom, you've brought in a whole load of them. And then they're going to intermingle with the uh, animals that are already in that country and spread the contagion. Yikes. Um, and the other, the other point, oh, and I, I should say... Um, yeah, so international uh, transfer of live animals or of meat products prepared in one country, the meat's contaminated with whatever resistant bacteria were on those animals there. There's no inspection for resistant bacteria mm-hmm. uh, when you um, import or export meat. So right. you can be importing contaminated stuff. And that's actually been a big problem in Denmark where they, they reduced antibiotic use in their animals, but they continue to import uh, certain kinds of meat, and they still have resistant bacteria, mostly coming from other places. And th- this is important, too, because even within a community, uh, human-to-human transfer, and our pets get involved in this also, especially with E. coli, we're passing bugs around all the time. Yeah. So the fact that one is a fastidious vegetarian or vegan or only buys antibiotic-free whatever, to the extent that that uh, reduces the amount of bacteria that one's eating in one's own food, does not protect from the general level of resistant bacteria that are around in the surrounding community. So it's really an ecological phenomenon. And until our whole society, and in fact the whole globe, cuts down on antibiotic use, there's still going to be this huge barrage of resistant bugs coming at us, even if we're doing our own local thing. So this is a case where, you know, um, think globally, act locally. Well, yes, we can act locally, but we have to realize we're not going to really address or, or turn off the problem until there's a global decrease in antibiotic use. That is terrifying. Joe, we're going to take a short break. Please stand the line, Dr. Johnson. Um, we're going to be right back. We just have to do a little sponsor drop. Skip the music because we're almost out of time, Joe. Just play the sponsor drop and let's roll. Thanks, honey. And thanks, Dr. Johnson. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just reintroduce Dr. Johnson in case people are just tuning in now. Um, we are speaking with Dr. James Johnson from um, the University of Minnesota, uh, who is a professor of medicine and the director of infectious diseases training program, etc. And we're talking about E. coli. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with Dr. Johnson. And right now, listen to our sponsor drop. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years 
full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. And we are back on Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're talking with Dr. James Johnson, a doctor of medicine, a professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota, and also, um, well, basically, he's an expert in E. coli, and that's his gig right now. Um, I'm sure he's had other ones, but he's, uh, you know, frequent te- testifies in front of Congress and select committee he- hearings about the use of antibiotics in uh, livestock. And we're going to jump right now to, um, you mentioned earlier, Dr. Johnson, the Danish, um, the way the Danish banned antibiotic, subtherapeutic antibiotic use, which means not using antibiotics for growth promotant, which is what we do in this country, in which the FDA issued voluntary guidelines in April, um, which we can pretty much assume are not going to be observed anytime soon. But the Danish famously banned antibiotic use in agriculture in the 90s, and the cattle industry and several of my recent guests, because I always like to get industry spokesmen on to defend their positions, to talk about why they do what they do. I mean, I think it's only fair. Um, and one of my recent guests was Dr. Richard Raymond, who was a former Undersecretary of Agriculture in the Bush administration, and he oversaw the um, Food Safety and Inspection Services. And he claimed, when I brought this up, that the Danish had ended up by using more antibiotics to fight disease than they had been using previously in a subtherapeutic um, protocol. So um, the, the report that you sent me about this made it clear that that was absolutely not true, and I'll just paraphrase quickly. Um, in short, improved farming practices and breeding programs, which may include reduced animal density, think uh, confined area feeding operations, better hygiene, targeted therapy, and the use of enzymes, probiotics, prebiotics, and vaccines, appear to have at least partially replaced the beneficial aspects of antibiotic growth promotants. So how is it possible that the cattle industry, or rather the livestock industry in general, continues to get to promote the idea that withdrawing subtherapeutic antibiotics is going to increase overall usage? How do they get away with that? Why is there not more of a campaign of of, uh, managing that information correctly? I think it's a huge disinformation campaign, and I think it's classic industry uh, disinformation. Um, whether they really believe it or they're being disingenuous and they know it's not true, um, they, they, in general, I think, are, are content and comfortable with the status quo and would like to see it continue. So yeah. they will keep saying, they will keep characterizing the Danish experience as being a disaster for animal health when, in fact, the data, uh, which have been uh, peer-reviewed and reviewed also by um, external bodies and, and published and are there to see, show no... Uh, negative impact on productivity or animal health. In fact, they continue to increase, and the Danes have a very successful, um, uh, especially pork production industry, uh, largest uh, pork exporters in the world, going right smilingly on. But yet, we repeatedly hear it's sort of the big lie. Oh, the Danish disaster. Totally. Uh, from industry. No, no, it's true. I mean, it's sort of like, um, I, I don't know that it's exactly the same, but for example, remember the history of, of tobacco smoke and how the industry assured us that there were, you know, no health adverse effects and it was actually good for you to smoke and so forth. And then finally, you know, everyone realized, well, that's just not true. Right. And what's been going on for the past 30 years? Well, that was an industry PR campaign um, to allow them to, you know, basically try to 
fool the American public and keep doing what they like to do because I think for them it's good for business. Of course, now, it's good for business. They have a much and, faster we, we fee conversion say, yeah, rate. The, the Danish, the Danish, to the extent that there were some adverse health effects from withdrawing growth promoters, it would show that they weren't actually promoting growth, which was the indication. They were um, preventing or treating low-level um, disease, so they had to deal with that, and they did. Now, the the uh, assertion that they're using actually more antibiotics now in Denmark, this is a gross um, distortion of what uh, was observed. The overall antibiotic use dropped uh, quite substantially. The fraction of that use that was labeled for treatment did increase, but that was very, very, very small to start with, and it became somewhat larger but still small um, after the drop in growth promoters. The growth promoter use was huge, so when it went away, the total use went down a whole lot, um, even though the so-called treatment use went up. Now, the Danish uh, Ag Ministry, when looking into that supposed increased treatment, in some cases did find that there were health issues which were dealt with through the measures that you just mentioned. Uh You know, better breeding, space, uh, vaccines, probiotics, etc. But they're seeing that some of it is actually cheaters. These are uh, producers who have not really been willing to go with the growth promoter ban, and they're continuing to use continuous uh, prophylaxis or growth promoter use, but they're labeling it for treatment to get away. And the Danish ministry is now uh, issuing what they call a yellow card to those producers who they identify as being outliers, not going getting with the program. So to say to cite that as evidence that you actually need or that there's been an increase in treatment use is is really disingenuous. Yeah, I mean it seems like the most patently um, transparent effort to obfuscate and cloud the issues and make people think that you know it's really it's great to use these uh, subtherapeutic quantities of antibiotics uh, because no, I otherwise think it's the important poor... to realize too that the entire European Union went away from growth promoter yeah. use in the 2000s and have done just fine with that. And Absolutely. actually Sweden went away from growth promoter in the 80s prior to the Danes, they had some hiccups, but they made their adjustments and they've done quite well with it too. So to suggest that one needs growth promoter to have a healthy uh, ag industry is, is patently false as demonstrated by the totality of Europe and the U.S. continues to be the, um, again, most intensive antibiotic-using country um, in the industrialized world for food animal production. And when you look at the others, there's a trailing curve way down to you get the Scandinavian, Norway, and Sweden, and Iceland. Way down at the far left, they're raising animals with almost no antibiotics. Right. And, you know, they do it. So, okay. And naturally, when you withdraw animals from us. Uh, Therape, you know, so from the therapeutic uh, level of antibiotics, you probably are going to see a spike in disease for a brief period of time. That well, makes you sense do, you to do me. Or you don't, depending on whether that antibiotic use is um, acting to suppress or prevent disease. If it's not, if it's really just growth promotion, then you don't see a spike in disease. You might see slower growth, but ironically, the Danes saw minimal effect on the mm-hmm. growth. So they weren't really getting much growth benefit from their antibiotic use either. The tiny margin they were getting in terms of increased growth was offset by the cost of the antibiotics. That was their calculation. Yeah, that so was, was a, a very interesting point. Yeah, that it was like they, you know, they basically made money or at least broke even on this. Um, I'm, we're going to move right along here because we're almost out of time. But um, one of the things that I was uh, struck by was that <clears throat> reducing, one of the papers I read was, reducing the use of antibiotics as growth promotants quickly diminishes the rate of antimicrobial resistance um, in pathogens, in foodborne pathogens. But how does that work? I mean, once the genie is out of the bottle, once you've mutated uh, the DNA or whatever of these pathogens, how do... 
how is it possible that they can then go back? I mean, because like with gen- genetically modified organisms, once you've changed the DNA of a mm-hmm. corn strain and it blows out into the wind and you're polluting other, it's like it's there. It's there for good. You've done the di- you've done the do, and it's over. You can't change it back. So how does that work yeah. in um, pathogens? I don't understand that. Well, yeah, um, bacterial populations are very dynamic. There are blooms and um, die-offs and waves of different bugs come and go, a bug has to be quite fit in order to persist or have some sort of survival advantage to compete with other bugs and also deal with environmental conditions. So if a resistant bug has any decrease in fitness, uh, fitness is what we call it, you know, how well the bug can do in competing against its uh, fellow bugs and, and living in the environment, if resistance is associated with any loss in fitness, then that bug is going to tend to fade away and be outcompeted by all the other bugs that are slightly more fit. Even if they're just minutely more fit, bugs turn over so fast that, you know, two times blah, 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 they multiply up, and pretty soon it'll be all susceptible bugs, and the resistant ones have disappeared. Um, the unfortunate thing is that some resistant bugs don't have a decrease in fitness. In fact, right. perversely, some of them can even be more fit. And then you're right, they don't disappear. They persist. So the genie may be out of the bottle. That was ironically um, what has been seen probably um, in the U.S. The FDA spent from 2000 to 2005 in lawsuits trying to withdraw uh, a fluoroquinolone like ciprofloxacin yeah. um, that was used in uh, poultry production. The, the manufacturer resisted and, and kept the FDA in the court for those five years. By the time they finally pulled it, the reason they wanted to pull it was because they had seen Campylobacter, a diarrhea-causing organism known to be originating in food animals and it gets into humans, becoming more resistant mm-hmm. to fluoroquinolones. After they started using it in poultry production, the bug comes from poultry. So FDA wanted to pull it. it took them five years to do so. When they finally pulled it, there has not been much of a drop in fluoroquinolone resistance in Campylobacter. And the industry points to that and says, see, it didn't need to be pulled after all, that probably had nothing to do with it. And the FDA says, no, uh, and the CDC, we should have pulled it sooner because it took so long to get it done that now the bug has become established, it's adapted, it's acquired other mutations that allow it to not be less fit, and so now it can compete. But ironically, at the same time, tracking E. coli in food, um, FDA... uh, NARMS program, National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring uh, System, has shown that um, quinolone resistance in E. coli from, from poultry products peaked in 2005, right at the year when fluoroquinolones when finally were pulled, yeah. and after that it has gone down. Uh-huh. So there was a positive effect on the E. coli, suggesting that those resistant E. coli were in fact trained up by fluoroquinolone use in poultry, they probably had a fitness disadvantage, thank goodness. So when the yeah. selection pressure was pulled, they faded away and they got outcompeted by, by quinolone susceptible E. coli. Incredible. Well, I mean, I was at a recent, at a conference in May, uh, I think it was like the National Grocers Association or whatever, but anyway, food safety and, and antibiotic use is one of the panels. And they had, I think it's Jeff Flynn from the FDA who's in charge of this kind of aspect, and he was explaining yes. about the voluntary guidelines that they have introduced finally um, over a three-year period, which many people think is way too long, um, that would uh, discourage the use of antibiotics in uh, animal feed which is, you know, the subtherapeutic usage. And I guess my question to you is, um, first of all, why, how is it possible that the FDA has been stumbling over this for 35, almost 40 years? Um, And secondly, why in the face of 
study after study after study does the FDA have to cave in to these um, you know anab- uh, these pharmaceutical and livestock interests in order to drag this process out even further and further endangering public health as a result why, I mean, I don't get how these guys get away with this. I gotta say, yeah. I'm just like, what? Yeah, I think FDA um, is eager to see the growth promoter use stop, and they're eager to see um, uh, over-the-counter or non-veterinarian supervised use mm-hmm. stop. So all of that growth promoter use, there's no veterinarian involved. There, there's, right. there's nothing like this in, in, in human antibiotic use. Every antibiotic that a human uses was prescribed by an MD or a DO or, you know, other yeah. professional. Um, in, in animal husbandry, uh, for treating sick animals, all of those antibiotics have to go through a veterinarian. But the growth promoter use for the non-sick animals, they're treated just like a feed supplement. The producer buys them in bulk. Yeah. It has them go to the feed mill, get it's mixed in. It's literally mixed in. It's, 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 not like, it's not like medicine. It's just a, a dietary uh, supplement. It's like putting vitamins so, in. Exactly. Right? It's um, the so same FDA idea. wants that to stop. That's part of this deal that all antibiotic use in, in food animals will go through a veterinarian and that the growth promoter indications will stop. So now someone can say, well, it's not for growth promotion, it's for prevention. Uh, but then, okay, fine. They have to apply to FDA to get that approved. And once approved, it will have to go through a veterinarian. So I think these are very positive steps. The question is why a three year transition period would be one well this yeah. is a big change for the industry you know fair enough they can't change on a dime um number two why voluntary as opposed to fda just saying do it right um okay the reason there is because fda got burned i think you know, more than once but most recently by the um them trying to mandate by a rule uh and pull approval for fluoroquinolone use and spending five years uh, in court, very expensive, very slow. Right. And they're hoping that by being um, uh, more sort of collaborative about it, they can actually get to the, the desired goal faster uh, mm-hmm. this way and less expensively than by being heavy-handed. Um, they also are not totally confident they have the authority uh, within the, the laws that they work under um, to to be restrictive, and that's part of why some people have introduced new legislation, this uh, legislation called PAMTA, uh, Preservation of Antimicrobials for Medical Treatment Act, yep. which would uh, clearly and un- unambiguously empower, in fact, direct the FDA to cut off the uh, growth promoter use if... Uh, safety to humans couldn't be documented, which would probably be difficult to do. So there's that legislature that's been floating around, and depending on which party is, um, uh, you know, majority in, in Congress, it either moves or doesn't move. But so far, it's it's never gotten more than just you know, a number of hearings. Right. Meanwhile, the FDA has decided to take this um, voluntary approach with industry, and at the same time, a federal judge, in response to a lawsuit from some consumer organizations, has directed the FDA to act on growth promoter use. So there's actually several lines. You've got, you got judicial, executive, and legislative trying to bring um, change about at various uh, rates of speed and with various levels of you know, heavy-handedness versus voluntary. <laughs> well, it's clearly a political minefield, and um, as we all know, uh, big pharmaceutical companies have almost endless budgets um, not to mention the livestock industry. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up, Doc. Um, 
In fact, I'm going to ask you now to promote any reading or anything that you want to say about what you've been doing and what you think consumers should do and how they can, you know, whatever, protect themselves. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm so gobsmacked by the information I've just received that I can barely articulate a thought now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's nice to end on what can I do as opposed to just doom, gloom, and it's right. complex and horrible. And yeah, we're all I mean, obviously we're not all dying in droves. No. Oh, but, yeah, so you know. what, what can the consumer do? I'm, I, I do think that um, smart purchasing is helpful more because of the slight economic nudge it gives to producers to think about going shifting to a different model on their own without having government you know make them do it if right. the market shifts the producers will shift okay yes. i don't i don't think frankly that we protect ourselves as individuals very much by buying you know supposedly wholesome meat as much, as attractive as that idea is i wish it were true but the thing about how the bugs spread around i think until society shifts in fact globally um, the the individual purchase choice doesn't make that much of a difference for the individual but it sends a signal and so you know the, the, by mass action but changing our purchasing practices i think we can have an impact but then also speaking up at whatever level you know letters to the editor uh... contacting your um, legislator Mm-hmm. And letting them know that you think this is an important issue, and since it is now coming before the, the legislature and it's coming before the executive branch, FDA, there is, you know, it's a politically hot topic right now. So yes, having, the, having the people in the streets say, we care about this, I think will um, nudge movement uh, in the direction we'd like to go. Well, that sounds very encouraging. I mean, I, I urge everyone to do exactly that. Um, Congresswoman Slaughter from upstate New York and uh, Congressman Henry Waxman from California have both uh, been working, uh, especially Congresswoman Slaughter has been tirelessly uh, trying to bring this issue in front of Congress, and I think she deserves all of our support, and I think we should all be talking to our local people in order to support her. So, um, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. I really appreciate your time. You've been a fabulous guest, and I do hope you come back and talk more about sort of the global implications of this because I think we didn't touch at all on how our food system is a global food system and um, you know sort of the monitoring issues that come with that and 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 sort of also the global cooperation on this stuff uh, which is clearly imperative I mean if we don't have a global cooperation then whatever we do as individuals or even as a country is, is kind of moot if the rest of the world isn't going along with us. Right. Thanks so much for the opportunity to speak. Happy oh, to come yeah. back anytime. Oh, good. That would be great. And so next week, my friends, uh, Michael Hansen from the Consumers Union is going to be coming on to talk about GMO crops and Proposition 37 in California, which is the proposition that is uh, mandating labeling of products in food, uh, prepared foods or canned foods, whatever, uh, that are uh, taint- not tainted, but are including uh, genetically modified organisms. That should be a really interesting discussion. He's a very powerful speaker and very, very knowledgeable on the topic. So um, thanks to my engineer near Joe and thank you to my sponsor White Oak Pastures and uh, we'll see you next week folk with another fabulous episode (laughs) of Straight No Chaser I'm your host Katie Kiefer and thanks for tuning in bye bye now thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.